I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and it is Election Day in San Francisco. I've brought together two excellent sources to help make sense of the election. First, we have City Hall reporter Dominic Fercasa, who's been covering the propositions and the people who will be on the ballot today if you have not done your vote-by-mail ballot already. And also opinion page editor John Diaz, who has a different role in the newsroom. John, you do endorsements for us. So why don't you, before we get too deep into everything, do the 101 of why the Chronicle (laughs) and how the Chronicle does endorsements. Glad to do it, Audrey. Um, First of all, I think it's really important that listeners know that we maintain a separation between the news side and the opinion section. Uh, The people who make the endorsements are are different. The staff folks are different than those who – Dominic and others who are out there doing coverage. This is the first time we've seen you in like a month. That's how little we talk. I'm spending a lot of quality time with uh, candidates (laughs) for uh, various uh, races. Uh, anyway, we we will have the candidates in, and we will uh, and and the proponents and opponents of ballot measures. Uh, we will come up with a, a judgment on on our recommendation. I think as important as the bottom line is what we explain to readers why we endorse the people that we do. It's a very uh, forthright process. There's no no one behind the curtain who is dictating it. Uh, the members of the editorial board will make our judgments. And basically, the reason we do endorsements is the thinking is if we're going to have an editorial page uh, 364 days a year, um, and, and we're talking about issues that we care about, particularly in the city, where there's housing, homelessness, uh, uh, et cetera, that it only makes sense that when it's time to actually vote on the people who are going to actually have some influence on those decisions, that we have some guidance. Excellent. Well, thank you for explaining that right off the bat. I think it's important to to clarify that that your department is separate from the newsroom where Dom works. And Dom, um, this election has been all-encompassing for you to cover from a news point of view. I want to start off with the top thing on the ballot, and that is Mayor Breed. She's not seeing any significant opposition. There are people running against her, but they're not very well funded. Um, So she's widely expected to win re-election, but she's on the ballot in more subtle ways too, isn't she? Yeah, that's right. In in the absence of a meaningful challenge to, to, I guess, her incumbency at this point, if you will, of course, we all know she's this, uh, we're, we're having another election for mayor because this where London Breed is right now is essentially finishing out the late mayor Ed Lee's term. So in 2020, that will have ended, and that's why we're voting on it again. It does. If it seems like it hasn't been that long, you're right. But yeah, it, so barring any sort of meaningful challenge to her candidacy, she's essentially taken you know the, the time and money that she has to spare and sort of shunted it into a handful of other candidates who she is very. And I know we'll get into this more in a moment, but she is very much hoping that uh, in the district attorney's race that. Susan Susie Loftus uh, will be her kind of, as she says many times, her partner uh, uh, doing more to tackle street level crime and doing more to curb and continue to curb um, things like car break-ins and things like that. Um, and sort of inside City Hall, she's also very much invested a time, energy, cachet into uh, helping uh, Valley Brown uh, get essentially reelected or elected to her own first full term, representing uh, San Francisco's 5th District, which encompasses, among other neighborhoods, Hayes Valley, Cole Valley, um, uh, the Haight, uh, Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. So it's, uh, and of course, London Breed appointed Valley Brown uh, many months ago as she... Um, 
took over the mayor's office. So it's just, rather than so again, ra- rather than having to spend time and money and 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 invest in your own candidacy, she's kind of been able to spread it into these other things that are very these other people uh, and issues that have been you know extremely important to her and important to her to be able to kind of govern in the way that she wants to and hopes to in her first full four years. Well, I, I think not only that, but as our our colleague Phil Matier wrote this weekend. Uh, the polls that are being that have been done on the mayor show that most people like her, but they also think she's not really done that great of a job, and that the city is on the wrong track. So, she when when we go and and vote today, um, it, it, I think it's it's not an insignificant thing to look at how much she wins by. Absolutely, no. I think that's going to be a really really interesting barometer of how people feel about the mayor. I mean, these, I think, I think it'll probably reflect the polls that we've seen. You know, I think it's, it is, it's, it's, we're in a, this very weird spot right now. I mean, she was inaugurated on July 11th of 2018. And so we've had what, 15 months or something like that to kind of gauge what her, where her priorities are. I mean, heck, her agenda essentially writes itself. You look at the most conspicuous urban problems that San Francisco faces and everyone agrees, herself included, go tackle that homelessness, housing, behavioral health, you know, people being allowed to disintegrate and drift aimlessly on our streets like that. Those are the problems we want you to solve. And that mandate, I think, has been clear. So I think if you look at what uh, what people think, of, again, it's 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 just we're in this sort of weird in between time. And I think we're going to close this chapter, this sort of like miasma that's hung over City Hall following the death of Ed Lee. OK, we've got a mayor for four years. We know what she has to do. She says she's going to do it. And now we can sort of start to really gauge her in a in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, look, she's given us a window into into what she wants to do. She's trying to open shelter and shelter beds. She's trying to pull whatever levers a mayor has to try to um, get more, you know, induce more housing to be built. She's, you know, investing in, in affordable housing and investing her own cachet and ballot measures around affordable housing that we can talk about. So, yeah, I think I think seeing how many people turn out, I mean, that's a big question too in this sort of weird in-between election, whether or not that'll depress how many people come out to vote, I think. Um, but th- I think that'll be a really interesting barometer as to how many people said, yeah, I'm going to go out and, and vote for, for London breed a second time. Audrey, I think the way I would explain that uh, that division between people liking her personally and being frustrated with her in terms of the job performance is I would just, I think Dominic, you're exactly right that that she's focused on all the right issues, but I think her approach to them is very incremental. And I think there's a lot of frustration in this city, as we saw with the passage of Prop C, and I think it's spilling over into some other areas as well including the DA's race, is that people want to see more forceful, more emphatic change than what, than what they've seen. I think that's the frustration with, with London Breed. Not that she's on the wrong track, but she's not going fast enough on that track. Well, and I, I think if I was to try to articulate what the mayor would say to that, it's that there a lot of these things are hard to do and they take incremental change. But you're right. Like it's definitely not showing up yet on the streets. And uh, that's that's why being mayor is a hard job in this town. And the one thing I, ke- I keep asking myself as well is if we talk about this sort of truncated term that the mayor has had, to what extent un- – until she knew that she was not going to have a, a strong challenger. And again, all due respect to everybody else who's running in the mayor's race. But if you have $500 and a lawyer, you can run for mayor. I mean that's just a fact. So I just – you know, I, I want to give a nod to the mayor's opponents and not say that this is an uncontested race. But nevertheless, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I guess to the extent until Mayor Breed knew that she wasn't going to face a strong challenger, I wonder to the extent to which that has sort of changed her thinking around, look, I, it's going to be tough for me in 15 months to – 
to launch something really ambitious and visionary. If I, you know, I won the last election by 1.1%. People forget about that. But, you know, to the extent to which she needed to sort of play it safe in these past 15 months or the, you know, until she knew what the sort of electoral field, you know, this month today was going to look like, I, I wonder how much that impacted her thinking. Dominic, I'm chuckling at your comment about with all due respect to the challengers, <laughs> at least three of them are what, what I would consider perennial candidates. Yes. Including one of them when they came in for the Ed Board meeting. She was the first candidate. All the years I've done this, I've uh, confronted a lot of perennial candidates. Her first words were, you know I'm a perennial candidate. <laughs> Well, that's something to run on. <laughs> See, this is the difference between opinion journalism and the, and the fact-based journalism is that you have to, like, point out that fact and, John, you can say whether they're serious or not. Go off, John. Uh, but, like, so uh, we we know uh, the mayor has these priorities. One thing that I think most recently she's been really vocal about is that there is no love loss between her and the district – current. well, the district attorney until a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, George Gascon. She said, I need a better partner in the DA office. As soon as George Gascon announced that he was uh, resigning early from his office and moving to L.A. to run for office down there, she immediately picked Susie Loftus, who was one of the four candidates for district attorney. That seems like it reverberated politically on her more than she thought it might. Oh, I think there's no question about that. I think that people immediately seized on that as a needless, you know, tipping of the scales in favor of her preferred candidate. So I've asked the mayor about this a number of times over the past couple of weeks since since the appointment and since she swore in Susie Loftus, I think on October 19th or 20th of this uh, this year. Um she said, look, this is an opening. I'm not going to allow this seat to go unfilled or to fill it with, you know, uh, uh, somebody from George Gascon's administration because I – this is not her words, but she she detested the guy. The, the relationship was icy at best between them. And there's, you know, I'm sure a number of factors over the past five, six years that have contributed to that. I mean she essentially blames the uh, district attorney's office for not being aggressive enough around prosecuting, again, street-level crime and car break-ins. I mean violent crime in San Francisco is down. That's just a st- statistical reality. But I mean, she said, look, Susie Loftus was the person that I endorsed a year ago. Why would I not put her into into office? But I mean, there was a there was a there was a real and a very fast backlash to that move. I mean, you've got the ACLU of Northern California weighing in saying like this is, you know, this is unfair politicking. This is uh, uh, an overextension of, you know, a mayor's power here to do this. And I mean, the reality is, I think it would have been just as easy. And and this is my own opinion, I admit. But I mean, wh- why not just say, look, obviously, you know who my candidate is my preferred candidate is. Why not simply pick a non-political person to to run the office for the next couple of weeks and then and then let the election play out? I think she could have avoided a lot of this. And I think the, the, the real person who bears the brunt of that, of course, is Susie Loftus and, and her candidacy. I mean, the mayor will the mayor will keep being mayor. You know, Susie Loftus is uh, facing a really, um, you know, I think a, a really tough challenge here. And the, and the timing was really of no benefit, no great benefit to Susie Loftus because it was after the ballots had been printed. Right. So she didn't have the incumbent designation, which of course is some, some value. Um, it's an, it's a fascinating race because not only do we have all the local dynamics that you just uh, mentioned, but there's also a national element on it. And that Chesa Bodine is sort of, of the, you know, of the point of view of progressive, uh, district attorneys that we're seeing across the country in Philadelphia. Certainly, that is the message that uh, George Gascon is bringing down to Los Angeles, where he's challenging Jackie Lacey, who is a tough on, more traditional tough on crime um, uh, prosecutor. So it, it's there's there's a lot of interesting elements to that that race, and I think if uh, Chase Bodine wins, 
uh, we're going to see national coverage of it. Oh, I think without a doubt, I think the winds are certainly like in his sails because of that reason, because of this sort of national trend around, you know, whether you want to call them reform prosecutors or, or what, whatever the title is. The one thing, and at the risk of making anybody's eyes glaze over at the, you know, mention of ranked choice voting, I do think that's one thing that has not come up in the discussion of the district attorney's race. And I think it could have a meaningful impact. I mean, look, the other candidates in the race, aside from Susie Loftus and Chesa Boudin, are uh, Nancy Tung, uh, a, a prosecutor currently in Alameda County and Leif Dotch, who uh, is a uh, uh, in the attorney general's office at the moment. Look, if you like Susie Loftus and, and Leif Dotch are certainly to the right of Chesa Boudin. You know what I mean? So what I'm saying is if you if you vote Susie, or Nancy Tung as your first choice, you are not putting Chesa Boudin as your second choice. I just feel like as some of the, you know, second, some of the runner up candidates, as those votes get, uh, again, shunted to um to to other to the candidates who don't lose out, who don't get eliminated as part of the ranked choice process. I think Susie Loftus comes up benefiting from a lot more of that than Jesse Boudin does. He's going to be relying a lot on people who put him down as their first choice. And just for the benefit of the voters who don't understand how ranked choice mm. works, even though it's been around a long oh, time. Oh, that's another podcast. But <laughs> it yes, does, try doesn't to really, do it quickly. It doesn't even come into play into, unless one of the candidates, uh, none of the candidates get above 50 plus one. Exactly right. So uh, to to wrap up the district attorney discussion, I think we should, to, uh, you know, I think a lot of people want to know on on the spectrum of law and order type candidates, how would you rank these four? I know I've gotten that question a lot, um, mostly from people who are very frustrated with the open air drug dealing. Nancy Tung has made this a major part of her campaign. Is it fair to say, Dom, that you would put her on one side of the law and order candidates and who comes next? Uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, I've, without a doubt, I think the sort of bookends are Chesa Boudin on the left and Nancy Tung on the quote unquote right side, if we want to talk about a quote unquote law and order prosecutor, right? And I think that leaves, you know, Leaf Dodge and Susie Loftus. I, I put uh, uh, Leaf just to the left of, of uh, Nancy Tung, I believe, and I put Susie a little bit to the left of him. I mean, she's got at least the rhetoric around wanting to, uh, around addressing, you know, the the sort of plague of mass incarceration in the United States. But she's, she's threaded the needle, I think, very deftly in, in her campaigning and in her politicking around saying like, look, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, be responsive to victims here. I mean, people feel like people feel like the city isn't responsive to, to, I guess, ordinary people, right? They feel like that all of the city's resources and attention are on the worse off and quite arguably they ought to be. But people feel like they can't walk down the street safely right now. They feel like when they're going to come in contact with a person who, you know, is, you know, on drugs, mentally unstable, and they feel unsafe walking around and they wonder why people aren't aren't hearing them or they feel they feel unheard and, and overlooked. And I think that's what prompts those kind of law and order responses saying, I'm going to crack down. But, you know, you, you, it's a San Francisco after all. So you have to Right. Thread the needle. Absolutely. So the last um, person who is going to be elected tomorrow in San Francisco is going to be a supervisor for District 5, which represents the Haight, Hayes Valley, the Inner Sunset, that neighborhood. It's the district that London Breed used to represent. Uh, she appointed Valley Brown as supervisor. Now Valley Brown is um, asking voters to endorse that. She's being uh, challenged by three other candidates, but one who is um, maybe a perennial candidate who challenged London Breed often, Dean Preston. How much does it actually matter who wins this district race? 
Well, we're talking about, you know, the composition of the Board of Supervisors, which after our last round of elections has certainly tipped into what is sort of generally summed up as a more a more progressive tilt, right? We've got, um, you know, people like Gordon Marr. We've got people like uh, uh, Matt Haney who have gone out and at least rhetorically, you know, want to have an agenda that reflects, you know, progressive values, whether that's, um, uh, you know, for instance, major health care reforms, uh, major mental health care reforms, whether that's um, various changes to election laws that make them more transparent. It's 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 tipped that way already. So how much does it matter if Dean Preston wins over Valley Brown? I think it va- matters very much to the mayor, both politically and I think personally even. You know, as you said, Audrey, the, the London Breed ran against Dean Preston and beat him in District 5. Um, not by much there either, just a couple of percentage points. And so I think that she has a lot invested in keeping Valley uh, around. Um, now, I just want something to point out. It's, it's not to say that Valley Brown has been a lapdog for the mayor. She has, she has taken positions alongside the mayor, like around supporting SB 50. Senator Weiner's, you know, major um, transit-oriented housing bill. She was kind of the lone voice on the Board of Supervisors to do that, or one of the very few. Um, but she has bucked the mayor in terms of various appointments to commissions. She's not she's not simply towed the line each and every time. But if we think about whatever the mayor has in store over the next four years, whether that's getting enough support for things like, you know, housing ballot measures, where she needs a contingent of the Board of Supervisors to back her up, you know, that's where that's where people like Valley and people who have been longtime supporters of the mayor. Um, are going to come into play. So I I think it matters less than a lot of people think. I don't think this is some kind of disaster and the mayor will never come back from it. But looking to past years, you know, you look at the the battles that, you know, guys like Chris Daly and Aaron Peskin had with Gavin Newsom. I mean, it's 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 going to be it's going to be tougher for the mayor. It's going to be a tougher road to hoe, but it's not some kind of disaster for her, for her, you know, for her campaign or for her the next four years in office. Well, I think housing is certainly going to be one of the big issues where we would see a difference between Valley Brown and Dean Preston. Dean Preston being a tenant's rights attorney, uh, he was the one who pushed the ballot measure that basically gave every tenant being uh, evicted the the right to an attorney. Uh, I think that is big and I think tone is really big too. I mean, uh, Dean Preston is not only a um, uh, devout progressive, but a very strong personality. Mm-hmm. So I think we could see Dominic, if you mentioned those bad old days, uh, uh, when, when Chris Daly and Aaron Peskin were, it was a constant battle. Uh, so I think it does make a difference in terms of the tone, but also in terms of policy. Absolutely. And, and speaking of policies, I want to get to the propositions that are on the ballot, but first let's take a break. I'm back with opinion editor John Diaz and City Hall reporter Dominic Fracasa. Uh, gentlemen, let's discuss the propositions that are before San Franciscans. Earlier, Dom, you said it is an clear urban priority of anyone. Homelessness and housing are those before voters today. Housing, certainly. Um, and I guess you could make the argument that the, the issues are pretty intertwined. Um, but I think one, one of the most significant measures on the ballot and one that is supported by everybody I can possibly think of inside of San Francisco City Hall is uh, Proposition A, which is a, a $600 million affordable housing bond. And we've written at length and there's a lot of public information around how that six hundred million gets divvied up, but this is meant to create and rehabilitate housing for very low up to middle income people. 
people. So, I mean, this is the largest affordable housing bond San Francisco has ever seen, which I think in many ways reflects the magnitude of the problem. Um, this was something that the mayor uh, envisioned and sort of demanded that the uh, the city address the, the, the bond schedule, how the city prioritizes that as a very strict and rigorous thing so that the city doesn't have to go around raising property taxes to pay back this debt. Um, but this wasn't on the ballot. This wasn't going to be on the ballot for years. And so uh, around about January, she decided that this is something that she wanted to prioritize. And we, you know, that started at 300 million and we figured out we could grow it to 600 without, again, raising anybody's property taxes. So it, uh, I think, I think this is just something that everybody has found it uh, very easy to get behind. Um, people who, you know, like take Ding Preston, for example. I mean, guys like him are going to have a real hard time supporting anything of like, quote unquote, market rate development, anything that could be possibly construed as, um, you know, being built for, for the 1% to occupy as it were. But when it comes to affordable housing, you know, it, it, there are no shortage of, uh, of champions for it in City Hall, at least people who say they are. So I think it's sort of engendered a, a pretty broad base of support. And it's going to need it. It needs two thirds to pass. So it needs a lot of people coming together around it. And when you have a two-thirds uh, measure, as this is, you almost you almost have to have no organized opposition right. in order to get it passed, and that was the case case here. So I think this is the rare instance of what Ed Lee would call the city hall family coming together. Yeah, very much so. And there's a lot of that around bonds, to be honest. I mean, because they what do they finance? They finance this crumbling seawall protecting $100 billion worth of San Francisco infrastructure and property. They, you know, pay for parks and things like that. So the causes are, are you know, are, are certainly worth considering, to say the least. Teacher housing is also on the ballot. Yeah, that's Proposition E. E for educators, Audrey. Oh, I believe is that that's how, I, I believe that's how this. Uh, no, they pick them at random, but they oh, okay. uh, they get creative with uh, uh, with what creative. they have to work with. Yes, very creative. Um, yeah, this is an interesting one. I think I want to sort of kick off a conversation about Prop E by saying that nobody knows how much of an impact this measure is going to have. And no, nobody really is foreseeing any negative consequences of this, but how much this is going to help housing get built in San Francisco remains an open question. So what this does is a couple of things. It would essentially allow the city to build 100% affordable or a housing reserved for educators, which means um, teachers and staff, both at San Francisco City College and at the, you know, in, inside the unified school district, um, it, it would allow places to be developed into affordable housing where they previously weren't allowed. So there's places like everything that's not a park but is owned by the city, state, or federal government is now at least eligible to be developable, if you will. There, there was no, there was, there were strict restrictions around that before. That if Proposition E passes, they'll they'll go away. And it's it's sort of meant to cut a little bit of the. I mean, the bureaucracy around building housing, as we all know, is calcified and very hard to to chip away at. And so this is one of those sort of chips that supporters say that we can like remove a couple of these barriers, make it easier, faster, and therefore a little bit cheaper to make affordable housing uh, a reality in, in San Francisco for people who need it. Well, about our endorsement, let me put it this way. Uh, we we endorsed it with a shrug. I don't think it's going to make a great deal of difference. For one thing, there's no real evidence that they penciled out that this 100% affordable, which is very, very hard to achieve in San Francisco, is really going to build anything. It's also very limited to um, to areas that would already have been uh, streamlined through Prop 35. So it doesn't really expand the amount of uh, area greatly, but it doesn't hurt anything. But I would not expect that suddenly we're going to see teachers throughout San Francisco and 
happily housed because yeah. of Proposition E. And I think any conversation about affordable housing and talking about these ballot measures, just a quick you know, rundown of the facts. I mean, every single unit, every apartment in an affordable housing building costs $700,000 to develop and build. And it takes about five years. So if, if today Prop E passes uh, and, and you know the, the process started on November 6th, we're looking at five years before anybody's moving anywhere, moving into any new housing. So something to consider. And finally, let's talk about Proposition C. This It drives me nuts that this is called Proposition C because I feel like we're still discussing Proposition C we are. from the previous election, which was a homelessness <laughs> tax or a tax to fund homelessness services. This Proposition C is about vaping. Uh, Jewel originally put it on the ballot, um, t- trying to overturn the city's ban on its vaping products. Then halfway through the campaign announced it wasn't going to spend any more money on it anymore. What is actually before voters, Dom? Yeah, it's still on the ballot, even though Jewel decided they didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore, which is, I don't know, cynically amusing, I guess. So what this would do, just just as you said, so the, the Board of Supervisors, uh, along with the you know major support of our city attorney, Dennis Herrera, said like, look, we don't really know what the heck, you know, uh, vaping is doing, especially to kids who, you know, are attracted to flavors of, you know, vaping products like cotton candy and caramel apple and stuff like that. So we don't know what it's going to do. So we're going to put a moratorium in a couple of years. We're going to say no more selling until the FDA tells us what is safe here, about what, about what the safety imp- impacts are. And Jewel didn't like that. This, this is their hometown. I doubt it's their biggest market, but getting, you know, being banned in where, where your headquarters are is not really a great look. So they got a lot of money and they uh, uh, put this money you know, or put, put this on the ballot through a signature of gathering petition, which they had a lot of uh, a lot of money to pay a lot of people to gather signatures outside of Safeway and other places like that. Um, but then they sort of, you know, they, we all saw the ads for a long time. There've been a lot fewer of them lately, but the yes on C ads were saying like, look, let's regulate this. Let's make it harder for kids to purchase e-cigarettes and vaping products, but let's not ban them outright. And so there was a lot of mental gymnastics that they were forcing people to go through to really understand what this was about. But this was really at at the core of it saying, look, please do not force us to stop selling in San Francisco. We really want to keep doing business in our hometown. And, you know, they, like you said, they pulled out, they pulled their money out, they pulled their support out, kind of allowed Prop C to twist in the wind. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. They're kind of banking on, you know, the work that they did many months ago at this point or several months ago to see if people, um, you know, see what people think. Well, speaking of mental gymnastics, I thought when the Board of Supervisors approved this ban, which we were on the other side of, uh, because there was such a, uh, I would say, selective outrage uh, on, the, on the part of the board. I mean, we still sell cigarettes in San Francisco, which yep. everyone knows will kill you. Uh, every argument that Dennis Herrera applied to vaping could also apply to marijuana. And and as I told him when he came for an editorial board, if he tried to ban pot in this town, he'd probably be recalled and we'd probably support the recall. Uh, but at the same time, Jewel really overreached on this because they, they not only uh, – they not only – overturned the ban, but then they went in and, and, you know, we called it audacious in our editorial. They basically said, okay, this is how it's going to be regulated. And, and any change in that regulation would have to go back to the voters. So it was a bad idea. Although, you know, as you point out, Dominic, even after they, uh, uh, Jewel backed off, you know, a lot of those ads were still running. Yeah. Zombie (laughs) ads. I actually got, got calls from the no on C side where they were trying to get us to uh, editorialized to push uh, Jewel to actively oppose its initiative, spend money against its initiative, 
And and as I said, is there any question that this thing is going down? Yeah. And as as even one of the consultants for Jewel told me, you know, the other side doesn't really need to have a campaign. They just have to uh, have people watch the news every day. You know, people dying of vaping and you know all kinds of concerns. Yeah, yeah. really true. Well, gentlemen. Uh, have a good election night. Uh, there will be cold newsroom pizza, no doubt, for for you, Dom. Fantastic. I know. It's the best part of election night as a reporter. Uh, thank you for being on today. And everybody who's listening, if you have not gone out and vote, please do so. Uh, you can you can find out where your polling places are by going to the city's website. And you can get our complete voter's guide at sfchronicle.com. Or you can pick up today's edition of the San Francisco Chronicle if you prefer to have it in print. You can do it that way too. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you to City Hall reporter Dominic Fercasa and opinion page editor John Diaz for being with me today. Thanks also to King Kaufman for producing this episode and thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.